four. Day after day in December, winds from the east and south brought rain to the regions above Kingston. Lennox Addington, Leeds, and Frontenac counties were rain-ridden and mud-clogged, veiled eternally in grey. The road between Bell Rock and Moscow, cutting through the heart of the drowned lands, was submerged as in the flood tide of early spring. Cattle, kept out of doors but fenced from sodden pasture lands, foraged among scrub timber and outcropping boulders near greening fields. In the unseasonal weather, an air of ease returned to the farm. The daily routines went on as usual. Nora apologized to Malcolm, and he realized that it was necessary to bear some unpleasantness if he were to remain on the farm. No definite date for Duncan's acceptance came from the home. Alice attended to her children and the second farmhouse as a distant neighbor. Travis spent most of the rainy days in the machine shed repairing and painting equipment. Willard and Malcolm attended to the animals and the barn. Malcolm drove to Tamworth and Wilton for feed and supplies and continued to cut wood when the weather allowed. As the early dismal days of December passed, Nora became more and more restless, increasingly disturbed over the prospect of Duncan's remaining at the farm for Christmas. She knew what food she wished to make, what cleaning had to be done, some of the surprises she could prepare, but more and more she began to feel that all of her plans for Christmas depended upon the absence of Duncan. Malcolm had accepted Nora's invitation to be part of the family for the holiday. She considered Travis's rooms to be more of an attachment to the house than the house itself, so Malcolm would be a guest on Christmas Eve, much as Doreen and Howard, or Travis and Alice. Her hope, however, that the main part of the house would be occupied only by Willard and herself diminished daily because she had not wavered from being adamant this time. She could not really begin anything until Duncan's transfer had been accomplished. Duncan himself seemed complacent, equally oblivious to the delay of his displacement and to the fact that it still lurked somewhere in the nearby future. His attitude, which was not outwardly different from what it had always been, unnerved Nora. He sat hour after hour at the east window, leaning like a statue toward the rain. She looked beyond him at the heavy skies, seeing no change, hearing thin-boned echoes of acrimonious laughter shrug from his shoulders. Her distress and the accompanying lethargy were at last broken by Alice, it was more than a week before Christmas when she arrived at mid-morning to start the annual clearing of the two front rooms for the family celebration. From the time of Alice's first Christmas at the farm, her preparations with Nora of the long, narrow room next to the kitchen and the parlor adjoined to it by a large alcove became a dutiful, tedious, and a sometimes amusing sacrifice. During the year, the two rooms served more as repositories than as living space. However, the smaller one provided, 
a kind of hallway from the kitchen to the downstairs bathroom, as well as to the stairwell and the entrance to Malcolm's rooms. The parlor was used primarily for visible storage of innumerable items, large and small, furniture and china, family albums and scrapbooks, old catalogs, telephone books, newspapers and account books, yard goods, linens, and bundles of string, magazines, outdated calendars, brown wrapping paper and grocery sacks, porcelain and wooden knickknacks, and unused gifts some of them still in their festive wrappings, discarded but serviceable slippers and shoes, quilts and pillows, paper boxes containing pots and pans, assorted glass jars and odds and ends, some of the cartons empty, awaiting future accumulations. Boxes, bundles, and knick-knacks were distributed haphazardly upon, under, and around the dining table and chairs, sideboard, treadle sewing machine, huge spinning wheel, and sheet-covered sofa, all of which were crammed into the spacious parlor. The smaller room, where the dining table would eventually be placed, was tidy by comparison, but it resembled a wide hallway rather than a room because of its assemblage of small tables and chairs placed along the walls heaped with overflow items from the front room. The ritual, annually, was for Alice and Nora to provide space in the parlor for the opening of gifts around the Christmas tree and to have the dining table moved into the adjoining room for the family meal on Christmas Eve. Curiously, none of the items in either room could be moved without Nora's supervision and approval, even though everything would eventually be replaced without strict attention to location for another year. It was an arduous task for Alice, who not only had to make countless inquiries followed by burdensome trips to the attic, porch, and upstairs bedrooms, but also had to listen to lengthy, often heard reminiscences about innumerable trinkets and keepsakes, along with continuous explanations of why Nora had decided at present not to part with certain objects. Characteristically, Alice was cheerful at first, but as the hours and days wore on, with Nora relishing the slow inventory accompanying the temporary temporary removal of her possessions, Alice became tired and bored. However, on this Christmas, she was to receive some unexpected relief from Duncan and Malcolm. Duncan, prominently on Nora's mind, interfered noticeably with her nostalgia. Malcolm provided assistance not only by listening to Nora's directions and some of her recollections, but also by aiding in the transport of portions of her hoard to temporary locations. On the morning that Alice arrived to begin the chore, Nora was doing dishes at the kitchen table. It was Willard's daily task to stack the breakfast dishes and see to it that the stove reservoir and tea kettle were filled with water. Hot water was seldom taken from the tap at the basin. Water was usually heated on the stove. The dishes were washed and rinsed in dented metal pans at the table, never in the sink. Well, this is a surprise, Nora said, seeing that Alice had left her rainware in the porch and intended to stay. We've less than two weeks, Alice said somewhat slyly. 
Now, Alice, Nora scolded good-naturedly. It may be true that in recent years, both Willard and I have slowed down a little, but it's not fair to intimate that my little reorganizing for the holidays takes such a world of time. Oh, I didn't say that at all, Alice objected, taking a dish towel, but I don't suppose I'll be allowed to just walk into the parlor and start moving things about. Gracious girl, Nora protested, pleased by Alice's gentle teasing. I couldn't allow such heresy. And certainly you wouldn't want to deprive me from seeing if the old Whig standards and the pictures of my girlhood in New York and the farm account books are becoming lost or buried or are still recent and fresh in my memory. Alice smiled not indulgently, but with genuine pleasure at Nora's defense. It was, perhaps, an initial appreciation of a certain quaintness in Nora's attitude that kept Alice coming back year after year to the bizarre and burdensome task of preparing the parlor. Once the dishes were finished and the tea had been taken, the two women went in to survey the living room. Nora raised the usual rhetorical question of whether it might not be better to move some of the large pieces of furniture into the smaller room and have both the dining table and the tree set up in the parlor. Once she had dismissed that plan as a breaking of tradition, the question of which things should be removed and where storage space was to be found occupied her. Alice was content to listen to the preliminary plans and queries, knowing that little would be accomplished on the first day and that the routine would not be altered. While the two women were pretending to ponder what had already been determined, Malcolm, Howard, and Duncan came into the kitchen. Howard, who had come to help with the cleaning of the barn because Willard and Travis had taken two steers to the auction in Newburgh, interrupted his preparation of tea to look through the doorway into the front room where the women were stirring. "'Come back to the stove,' he said to Malcolm. "'They're beginning the Christmas ritual.' Before Malcolm could inquire what was meant by the ritual, Duncan seated himself at the table facing the stove, asked crossly, "'What do you mean by Christmas?' Howard was pouring hot water into the teapot, which he had set on the stovetop. He did not turn toward Duncan. "'What do you mean by Christmas?' Duncan persisted. Howard brought the teapot to the center of the table. "'They're getting the rooms ready for Christmas.' "'No, they ain't,' Duncan shouted up at him. "'It's raining.' "'Sometimes it rains at Christmas.' Howard spoke in an almost comforting tone. "'No, it don't,' Duncan countered. I never seen it rain at Christmas. Well, Howard said, sitting down at the opposite side of the table, speaking as if he were trying to stir Duncan's memory, I don't think that can be quite right. It's been more than once that we've heard rain on the roof while we were sat together around the tree. Not me. Duncan shook his head in vigorous denial. Only time I seen it rain at Christmas was a trick. Flaxseed spilled all over the road going up a hill so's the sun shining on it made it look like a river coming down. Nothing but a trick. Howard decided not to press the matter. Well, he said without giving up entirely, if you've not seen a wet Christmas, you may see one this year. It's near to spring, Duncan retorted. Seems like it, Howard conceded. 
He had lost interest in his tea and after a few sips decided to leave, telling Malcolm, who had sat in silence during the conversation, that he would help with the evening milking if Willard and Travis were over long at the auction. Ever seen flax? Duncan demanded of Malcolm as Howard went out the porch. Yes, I've seen flax, Malcolm nodded. I mean the seeds, Duncan corrected. Small, black and oily, slippery. Slide right through your fingers, no matter if they're tight together. He opened the palms of his lean hands and squeezed his bony fingers together, watching the protean seeds escape between the dried-out crevices. Ever stand in flax? No, Malcolm answered, slightly amused. It's not something I ever thought much about doing. Not like oats or corn, Duncan informed him. There's a bottom to such, not flax, he warned. Flax is dangerous, slides away like quicksand. Six feet of flax can drown a man. No way to climb out. He gazed at Malcolm, questioning in his half-belligerent, suspicious fashion. You know about flax? No, Malcolm answered, pouring more tea. Willard does, Duncan said emphatically, eager to tell Willard's story. He was driving wagon on a farm right near Montana, fence post right on the border. There was this flax cut in December when everything was dried out after the wheat was in. He was charged with drawing it to a farm way up by Willow Bush with it already turned dark. Duncan peered tensely before him, as if the light inside the room had drastically diminished. Horses'll take you there, no trouble, they told him. Weren't no wagon seat, so Willard jumped into the box. That flax was smooth and quiet, like slipping through bunches of pebbles, all making small clicking sounds. Seeds was flooding up under his arms when his feet got down to the wagon bed. There was a big moon. Duncan could see it lighting the landscape as Willard continued his journey. This long hill coming up from the river. The load shifted some backwards, and in a wink, that flax slipped through some slack in the gate till it was standing hardly up to Willard's knees. Behind the wagon, down the hill, that flax was all laid out in crystal, shining and glittering in the moonlight, clear down to the river. The story was at an end. Duncan obviously knew its aftermath, but cared nothing about it. He went to the wood box and found a stick for the fire. Alice and Nora came into the room as Malcolm rose to clear the table. Nora insisted that he leave the things for her. Alice was on her way home. We've had our preliminary session, Nora explained to Malcolm. We always ready the two front rooms for the holidays. Only Alice and I know what that means. We may want to enlist your help with some of the heavier things. Fine, Malcolm agreed. He hesitated briefly, wondering if he should walk out with Alice, then decided not to defer to Nora. Outside in the rain, Alice confided that she would welcome some interruptions in the reviewing of old albums and the moving of boxes. They laughed happily together for a moment. She let him know that she had had to listen at length to Nora's repeated lamentation over having to harbor the intruder for yet another holiday and that her Christmas was already all but ruined. She would continue to pray for a miracle but was afraid it would be to no avail. 
It's hard for both her and Duncan, Alice said, but perhaps it's even harder for Willard and Howard. She looked into Malcolm's usually neutral gray eyes to see if he agreed. There's nothing I can do, she said helplessly. But you could take Duncan with you to the spruce den near the river to find a Christmas tree. Perhaps you could take him to late church on Christmas Eve. Malcolm was astonished. Take him to church? He shook his head in dismay. I don't go to church. You could this once, she coaxed. It's not clear to me, but I have a feeling that he would like to go to church. Or maybe it's just that I'd like him to go, or feel that he ought to. Malcolm tried to shrug the idea away. He probably hasn't been to a church or thought about going for fifty years. Maybe he should, Alice pleaded. There's no one else to take him. I can't because of Travis. Howard can't because of Doreen. And Willard can't because of Nora. Her voice was bitter as she cataloged the divisions. Then she apologized. I don't always feel this disappointed and cynical, but Christmas never changes. It's always a trying time for me. It's all right, Malcolm said. I'll see if Duncan wants to come along after a tree, he promised. I'll have to think about trying to take him to church. She nodded in agreement and started under her brown umbrella along the rutted, mud-choked tractor path toward home. She did not return for several days, but the clearing of a space in the parlor corner anticipating the arrival of the tree had cheered Nora. She began at last to do her Christmas baking. The celebration was less than a week away. Although the weather remained unseasonably warm, the uncommon rains had at last abated. Malcolm decided that it was time to ask Duncan to go with him to cut a tree. He went to the milk house where he found him holding a black and white cat on his knees. Duncan said nothing as Malcolm leaned his axe purposefully against the milk fat. "'Would be a good day to walk down to the river,' Malcolm said uncomfortably. "'What for?' Duncan snapped, stroking the cat briskly. "'Cutting a tree?' "'I thought I might,' Malcolm said deliberately. "'Want me along, I suppose.' Malcolm believed that an edge of enthusiasm tinged Duncan's scorn. "'Well, I thought I might ask.' "'Ain't no trees down there,' Duncan asserted. "'Least ways, no big ones.' "'Might be a small one that would do,' Malcolm said. Duncan spilled the cat from his lap as he stood up. "'Dad would never cut a small tree,' he scoffed, brushing an arm upward. "'Tips always scraped the ceiling.' In the same moment, he peered quizzically through the window toward the sodden landscape and took his jacket from a hook near the door. "'Hard to bring a tree,' he observed, "'without a sled.' Malcolm suppressed the urge to counter with, "'Ain't no big ones down there.' The two men passed the machine shed and followed the truck trail, which ran between fenced fields lying beyond the back buildings of the farm and the edge of scrub timber scattered among rocks above the river. The pair had walked a similar course when in summer they had gone to see the hole. This time they moved northwestward, away from the scrub timber and great boulders, up a rise onto a tableland grown with straight, hard maples, spaced as by design to appear as both pavilion and woodland. 
Naked and gray, the dormant trees of dying December, dead leaves decaying at their feet in matted, rain-soaked, swollen mounds and layers. Long wisps of ferns and leaning grasses flourishing above the surface of the uncovered woodland grave. Sounds of waking wind and muted, sobbing fire echoing beneath heavy boots moving through unburied autumn. Leaves wasted, pale, remote, and unremembered. Cows don't eat this grass, Duncan said, pointing to vivid shoots poking through the leaves. Not summer nor winter. Malcolm waited for the explanation. Ain't nothing but green water now, Duncan said, dismissing the rain-swollen grass. Cows won't eat it. They had reached the north side of the woods where the land dipped it down toward the river and small scraggly tamaracks grew in tangles at the edge of the maple stand along the curving shoulder of the slope. To their left, along the borders of the black, swift-running stream, fir and spruce trees extended in intermittent clusters. "'Not all runts!' Duncan exclaimed in surprise. He had not visited the place for many years. Drawn by the sound of the stream, he climbed carefully up the slanted side of an outcropping rock which overlooked it. "'Water's fast,' he said. "'Deep. Good place for drowning cats!' Malcolm found the proclamation peculiar in spite of his never expecting Duncan's remarks to be strictly reasonable. Duncan peered down into the rushing, impenetrable dark waters. Dad used to wade him down in a sack and drop him off the drowned land's bridge, he said, carelessly turning away. Don't want a fur, he said, surveying the trees. To find a tree was not easy. Duncan looked for a perfect one where few satisfactory ones grew. All were judged to be defective in size and shape, until Malcolm, at last, declared that one would have to be chosen. The tall one with the crooked trunk was as good as any, according to Duncan. But some of his disappointment diminished when Malcolm struck his first blow with the axe. Trunk solid, he said. Ornaments will fill some of the spaces. The tree was indeed spindly. So Malcolm had little trouble in bringing it back to the farm. Nora declared, without concealing her disappointment, that it would be just fine. Duncan, on the other hand, told Willard at the evening's milking that he and Malcolm had cut a wizard of a tree. The tree was stored in the porch until three days before Christmas when Nora and Alice had finished the long chore of preparing the front rooms. Then Malcolm brought the spruce and its ponderous stand into the parlor. The room had been readied in its usual manner, a space left in the southwest corner for the tree. The spinning wheel and sewing machine crowded into the other south corner. The long sofa angled so as to partially face the tree from across the room. The sideboard placed along the east wall, partly extended in front of the tall, narrow window. Boxes piled on the sideboard, along with miscellaneous pieces of china. Boxes and papers crammed beneath the sideboard. Boxes and papers stored upon and under two small end tables, placed along the south wall, obstructing and sealing off the long-abandoned front entrance to the house. Alice and Nora 
were overseers at Malcolm's placement of the tree. Nora remarked half cheerfully that every ornament that she and Willard had ever accumulated might be needed in order to fill it out properly. More disheartening than the spare appearance of her own tree was her hearing that Alice and Travis had not only neglected to go out with their children to cut a tree, but had actually purchased one in Verona without so much as having the children along. She consoled herself by reminding Willard that the children always enjoyed what amounted to two celebrations, one with the larger family and the other at their own home on Christmas morning. Two days before Christmas, the farm wakened to a thin powder of snow, which had fallen just before dawn. By mid-morning, the sun had grown warm, and wisps of cloud trailed across a windless sky. The snow vanished, and rivulets ran in the ditches as in the early spring. Nora made cookies with her grandchildren, while Alice and Doreen went shopping. Willard and Malcolm found chores to do, which took them outside of the barn. Duncan put on a light jacket and sat on his porch chair as in the early days of summer. Driving past the house with the trailer full of manure for Howard's compost heap, Malcolm was mildly surprised to see Duncan on the porch in his familiar, motionless posture, head leaning slightly to one side, his eyes focused upon distances both known and unexplored. Malcolm shut the tractor off and got down. Duncan gazed beyond him and asked, Ever been a Wolf Island? Malcolm felt a twinge of pain, no surprise. Yes, I've been there, he replied. Not much over there anymore, Duncan said. A couple of sheep farms and a bunch of houses. Ferry landing, Malcolm added, sounding a bit like Duncan. It's an island, Duncan advised, vexed by Malcolm's ignorance. Yes, I know, Malcolm retreated. I've been to all those islands out there, all thousand of them. He waved toward the distance with the back of his hand, looking past Malcolm, seeing himself in the boats touching familiar shorelines, island after island. Malcolm decided to return to the tractor, wishing he had merely waved while going by, but as he stepped off the porch, Duncan followed him. "'Where are you taking that?' he inquired. "'Down to Howard's for his garden.' "'Maple sap's not running,' Duncan snapped." Yes, it could wait until spring, Malcolm agreed, getting up onto the tractor seed, but it's a good day for outdoor work. His sentence seemed to be a signal. Nora was at the back door letting the children out. Howard appeared walking toward the house, and Doreen and Alice were turning into the driveway. Nora stepped out into the yard as the two women, struggling with packages, came from the car. There was an air of pleasant reunion as Nora greeted them. Howard chatted with Malcolm and the children, circled by their barking dog, pestered the men for a tractor ride. Duncan, unnoticed, returned to his place on the porch, where he sat watching the group as from a far country. Nora suggested that they all come in for tea and sample the cookies which she and the children had just made. The invitation was accepted by everyone except Malcolm. He wanted to deliver the manure to Howard's house. 
The children accompanied him on the tractor, with their German shepherd leaping and barking alongside. On the return trip, with the sun on his shoulders, Malcolm looked into the brilliant light still flooding the porch and saw the three Ryan brothers conversing together. He came to believe, later, that this was the only time that he had ever seen them all alone together. He intended to drop the children off and go on by, but Howard signaled to him, and, as before, he came to the porch. "'We're having some trouble with Duncan,' Howard said, with a small smile playing about his lips. "'But we've just come to a sort of agreement.' Malcolm simply waited. He sensed that he was to be a part of some secret which they wished to entrust to him. Howard's disclosure seemed ridiculously simple. Duncan won't be bickering about getting cleaned up tomorrow. Malcolm had anticipated something more profound. It was Willard there, Howard continued, pointing a finger and speaking like a lawyer, who arranged to have a call come up from Sydenham, saying there was no space presently at the home. Truth of the matter is, Duncan's room is sitting empty and paid for till the first of the year. He was genuinely proud of Willard's cleverness and generosity, besides being greatly pleased that Duncan would not be away from the farm for Christmas. So, Howard concluded, Duncan, out of fairness to Willard, will show no rudeness to Nora and come to supper looking like he just stepped out of a bandbox. Duncan winced at Howard's pronouncement. He gazed over his right shoulder, squinting into the sun, finding it less painful than Howard's sermonizing. If the room's empty and paid for, he said, refusing to capitulate without signs of a struggle, I'd best be packing. Howard and Willard said nothing. They knew that Duncan had not intended to coerce them into asking him to stay, that he would not urge them to say aloud what was so understood as to be unspeakable. Malcolm saw the fleeting, brittle sun of late December brush bronze, like hammered years, upon the stoic trinity of weathered faces. "'It's best you stay,' he said to Duncan, scarcely conscious of having spoken." They'll not be expecting you now. He himself stood near the porch door, furthest from the sun. Duncan, still seated between Howard and Willard, gazed in his accustomed way out toward the leafless trees and scattered rocks. Starting to cool down, Howard said, buttoning his jacket and moving toward the porch steps. From a few paces into the yard, he looked back over the housetop. Clouding up, he said. Could have more rain. Maybe a little snow. More than likely rain, Willard thought. Won't do nothing, Duncan called from the port. Ain't no wind. Malcolm mounted the tractor. Howard faced into the sun and walked down the hill towards his house. Willard returned to the barn. Once the tractor was shut down, a singular silence settled upon the farm. Voiceless doves huddled on the shingles of the barn as the setting sun declined quickly in strength. 
A few last bird wings sent brief songs into the leaning light. Duncan did not stir for a long time, not until he was surprised by the edge of a great orange, early moon sliding toward the eaves of the barn, holding the rim of the east in silhouette. The farmhouse, still touched by final rays from the unyielding sun, sent its lengthened shadow toward the rising moon. Duncan moved from the porch and walked down the long driveway toward the road. It was not unusual for him to go a little distance westward on the road toward Howard's house, but he chose, rather, to walk east until he reached the south pasture gate. The pasture was seldom used. Spindly trees and bushes, struggling among outcropping rocks, covered most of its surface. Not more than a half mile from the road, it became swampland, surrounding a pond tangled with weeds and decaying deadheads. Duncan did not go a great distance into the field. The sun had set. He made his way slowly among the rocks and soggy tufts of grass with the help of the moon, which had risen completely above the eastern horizon. Unsteadily he made his way, sometimes on hands and knees, up the slanting face of a rugged boulder. At the top he sat down to rest, with his back against a small tree grown through a crevice in the rock, facing the moon. He gazed upon it a long time, perplexed and curious. It had ceased to climb. It had become arrested by the broken crown of a great decaying elm towering above the landscape. The black-armed branches of the giant tree were pressed into the glowing surface of the captured moon, stark, twisted, fibrous outlines of death engraved upon the prisoned circle of the reflected sun. Stilled, unchanging, stilled, Unchanging, motionless in time, the disk of the moon remain encumbered by the tangled branches of the destitute tree. No sound, no movement in the tarnished landscape, flooded with hunchbacked shadows. Silence the single watcher, seated for centuries on stone. Slowly, imperceptibly, lifted by the shattered arms held within its ring, the moon began to climb. The great elm's massive trunk flared upon the night and perished. Its branches tumbled down from heaven. Duncan did not linger in the pasture. Once the moon and the elm had released one another, he noticed the roughness and cold of the stone he sat upon and the chill in the early night air. By the time he returned to the house, supper had been set and he had been missed. Willard had looked for him upstairs in the house, in the loft, and near the main farm buildings. Malcolm had searched some of the tractor trails and cattle paths leading to the river. Travis had been called and had promised to go out in his truck if necessary. Nora was alone when Duncan came in. "'You've given us a start,' she said sharply. "'Where have you been?' Duncan, standing at the kitchen door, locked his jaws firmly before answering. "'Been up to Wilkinson, watching the freights go by.' 
She was very angry. Don't you be rude and ridiculous with me, Duncan Ryan. I'll not have such foolishness. Everyone's running about trying to find you when you behave like an idiot. He walked past her to the table and lifted the cover of the serving dish, which had been set in the middle. Damn hot dogs, he complained, dropping the lid carelessly. I've had enough, Nora shouted, wringing her hands in her dish towel. Get out, get out and stay out. I, I never want to see you again. She was in tears, close to hysteria. You only stay alive to torment us, to watch us all go to our graves. I seen the undertaker years back, he taunted grimly, and picked out your coffins. I ain't ordered no flowers. What do you want, rhubarb? His lean form disappeared through the dining room door. She was sitting at the table, sobbing bitterly, when Travis came into the house. What's happened? Has he been hurt? No, he's all right. It's nothing, nothing at all. She had straightened up, consoled by his coming, and was almost composed. What do you mean nothing, he demanded. His brashness made her feel culpable, unable to resist telling him the truth. Duncan has treated me rather rudely, she admitted. She had regained the soft, slow, contralto tones which usually characterized her speech. Travis was furious. God damn him, he shouted. Where is he? I'll rip out his fucking tongue. She was standing in the dining room doorway, affronted by his language, ready to counter his fit of temper. You know, Travis, she said sternly, we are not used to that sort of language in this house. Your father never speaks in such a manner, nor should you. He was briefly conscious of his coarseness. He wheeled his right arm toward the upstairs room. Something has to be done about him. It won't be long now, she replied, calming him and consoling herself. Father has made special arrangements to keep him here for the holidays, but there is a room ready for him now at Sydenham. I've reconciled myself to the postponement. Her suggestion to Travis that he go find Willard and Malcolm was interrupted by their return. Once they had been told that Duncan was upstairs, Willard wanted to know where he had been, nor his sense of humor had returned. According to the story I heard, she said, he was over at Wilkinson's watching the freights go by. He's crazy as a bedbug, Travis declared scornfully, but not without some trace of amusement. I don't know as I remembered, Willard said, half-questioning Nora. When it's been that the trains have sounded all the way from Wilkinson with the moon aloft in the winter. We seldom hear the trains, Nora told Malcolm, unless it's overcast and the air is heavy. Then she addressed Willard, speaking almost formally. I simply don't recall Willard ever having heard them when such conditions as these prevailed. Not knowing what we'll have by morning, Willard concluded. Nora wanted the men to sit down to supper and invited Travis to take Duncan's place, but Travis had already eaten and was just going to run up to the barn to check out how far along the Red Holstein was. Then he would be off for a little Christmas snort at Craig Malloy's house. You do be careful that it is no more than a little one. Nora admonished, wagging a finger at him. She folded her hands at her waist in sly, obvious admiration of his wickedness. She was certain, she told Willard, 
upon Travis's leaving, that everything would be in bounds at Malloy's, although she knew very well what sort of reputation the man had. The lad will be able to take care of himself, Willard said, dismissing the matter. When coffee was served, Nor wanted to discuss a delicate matter with Malcolm. She was not inquiring about his convictions or his practices. It was a matter of determining arrangements. She was wondering if he would be going to church either on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. She and Willard would be going to the morning mass, and he was welcome to go with them. But if he planned on going and preferred the evening service, he could certainly go with either Howard and Doreen or Travis and Alice. Malcolm was given some time to think during her lengthy explanations. I really don't go to church very often, he said. But if I decided to break with tradition, I think I'd prefer the evening. Malcolm's reply amused Willard. He chuckled a bit. Nora, however, missed or ignored Malcolm's irony and spoke as if she had received confirmation. That will be fine, she said. Willard and I will be looking after the children. It was revealed then that Malcolm was invited to share in the traditional and somewhat surreptitious taking of a small bit of Christmas cheer shortly in that very room. This was the evening upon which Howard and Doreen customarily brought in a thimbleful of rum to be shared before they went off to see Doreen's sister in Tamworth. Although Willard was in his usual good temper, he was gradually becoming mildly exasperated by Nora's fastidious explanations— When the children were wee ones, he said to Malcolm, the drinking party was held smack in the parlor on Christmas Eve. Why, Willard, Nora objected mildly. It's really not fair for you to describe our little social event in such a way. It was not long before Howard and Doreen came by. Willard went upstairs without objections from Nora to see if Duncan wished to come down. The kitchen table was pushed back so chairs could be settled in a rude semicircle facing the stove. A coffee table for the glasses and rum was brought in from the dining room. Howard was officially in charge of mixing the drinks, limited to a choice of rum with water, ice, or Coca-Cola. Although the chairs arranged before the stove suggested intimacy, Malcolm felt a peculiar atmosphere akin to both reticence and obligation, rather than to merriment and relaxation. Doreen and Howard never let us buy the rum, Nora advised Malcolm. She was sitting between Doreen and Willard, speaking across the room to him where he sat at the end of the half-circle nearest the door to the porch. It's because Nora won't let Willard go into the liquor store, Howard said, busy at the table. There was a subdued ripple of laughter. Duncan, sitting opposite Malcolm, next to Howard's empty chair, drank two jiggers of rum in quick succession. Then he peered through the dim yellow light across the room at Malcolm. "'Back from school, are you?' he asked. Malcolm had not yet learned how to avoid or answer Duncan's unexpected and peculiar questions. "'Well, not exactly,' he answered uncomfortably." Don't mind him. He's already had too much rum, Howard said, taking his chair next to Duncan. 
Duncan took no notice of him. He gazed upward into the yellow shadows behind the light fixture on the ceiling. Dad could drink more than anybody, even more an old man Bizonette, he asserted. Nora looked desperately at Howard, who was always relied upon in such crisis. Well, I don't rightly know about that, Howard said. Dad was hardly the kind to get into such a contest. Duncan challenged him. Bizonette fell off his tractor. Dad didn't, Willard intervened. Dad wasn't much of a drinker at all. You was just a peewee, Duncan snapped. Nora managed to say in a conciliatory tone, Everyone sees the past differently, I'm sure. Then, as if to explain to the outside world, represented by Malcolm, she added, I'm certain from what Willard tells me that his father, for all his strength, was a moderate and gentle man. Duncan, however, persisted. Was only once he fell down in the yard, he declared, with disappointment tinging his recollection. He looked intently past Malcolm through the kitchen wall to the spot where his father had fallen. Everyone was startled, even Duncan, to hear someone at the outside door. It was Alice, who came in cheerily, knowing that she was likely to find them in the midst of indulging. She had managed to leave the children with a friend in the village so she could join the party. She was unusually merry, bending down with kisses for Nora and Doreen, giving another to Howard, who stood up to serve her. Performing in front of the group like a choir director, she lifted the drink that Howard handed her and proposed a toast to the spirit of Christmas future. Nora took exception to the toast, saying it should be present, not future, but Alice insisted almost flippantly that Christmas Eve was absolutely miles away. Nora and Doreen exchanged sisterly frowns. Howard, the peacemaker, said he drank to the spirit of Christmas past, and everyone should be free to drink to whatever time seemed appropriate. Alice wanted to know what time Malcolm preferred, and there was general amusement when he cleverly decided he drank to all three of the rum held out. His turn of wit saved the party, for the conversation settled on such matters as the next day's preparations, what gifts had been bought for the children, and the trimming of the tree. Nora invited everyone to stay for tea, but Howard and Doreen had to be on their way to Tamworth. Duncan, who became silent and was ignored after Alice's arrival, slipped out of the room and went back upstairs. Willard and Nora were going to do a little advanced tree trimming, some of the higher decorations, leaving the lower branches for the children. And help from Malcolm and Alice would be welcomed. Alice could only stay for tea, and Malcolm lamely excused himself on the grounds of wanting to have a look at Travis's prize red Holstein before getting a few things straightened out in his rooms. He was resentfully aware of Nora's suspicion that he wished to leave with Alice. But Alice remarked almost blithely, "'I'll go with you to the barn.' To Nora, she said, with some discernible defiance. Travis wants her watched closely. She's a good one, Willard nodded, but he did not offer to go along. Outside, thin clouds were drifting across the face of the moon. The wind had risen, and nearly naked trees moved restlessly in glimmering gusts of luminous light and shadow. Alice touched Malcolm's arm as he moved in the direction of the barn, 
I'm going home now, she whispered. I can't go to the barn. I want you to take me up into the loft, so I'm going home. He stood amazed, his body rigid, sensing her shadow drift toward the lights of the distant farmhouse across the dark field. She was indistinct, soundless in the distance, before he was able to move. He felt compelled to follow. She heard him behind her and waited. He found nothing to say when he reached her. I'm sorry, she said. I'm afraid I fell off the tractor. It's all right, he muttered, ignoring her attempted levity. Will you come when the children are sleeping and walk with me to the river, she asked. He would. Again he stood immobile, confused in the dark as she drifted away. He went back to his room and paced aimlessly within the confines of the crowded space. He put out the lights and lay on his bed surveying the ceiling in the dark. He went up to the barn and looked vacantly at the red Holstein. He switched the barn lights off and listened for a short time to the ruminating cattle and the wind at the eaves. He returned to his room and sat in the dark, looking at the farmhouse lights across the field, agitated and apprehensive, wondering clearly, at last, if he should keep his promise. He felt no urge to avenge himself on Nora, or to be an agent or an accomplice in some clandestine revenge of Alice's upon Travis. He was, however, moved by a subtle, underlying desperateness in Alice's mood, by her boldness at the party, and by the sudden overture to him from which she had quickly retreated. When he saw Alice's house darkened and the yard light left burning, he took it to be a signal, and his pulses quickened. Crossing the field, he had no plans, no preconceptions. He was as uncertain of himself as on the evening he had approached the unlit house in the rain and found it silent. The luminous glow was gone from the land, for the moon was hidden. The farmhouse yard light cast a high arc into the sky. The wind blew in ragged gusts, but carried no chill edges of winter. The scent of vernal rain prolonged the season's deception. Malcolm was startled by the sudden appearance of Alice's figure silhouetted behind the square panes at the end of the shadow-filled porch. He approached the steps and waited until she came to the door. She was wearing a full-length gown as for a concert or an opera. A long, flowing shawl was wrapped about her shoulders. She descended the stairs obliquely, lifting her gown to free her low-heeled black slippers which glistened in the saffron glow from the yard light. Her descent was studied, theatrical. Malcolm did not know what to say. I expected you to come in the carriage, she teased, conscious of his embarrassment. She touched his arm and directed him toward the driveway. We'll have to walk to the river along the road, she said, stretching out her skirt with both hands and bowing a little. My costume requires it. He was tempted to try the role she prompted him toward, but 
he could not mimic her mood. He was unable to ignore the tragic, somber whispers lurking in the echoes of her voice. He could not straighten urbanely and volunteer his arm. He could only manage a strained and undramatic offer to accompany her to the bridge. She took his arm as they left the yard and walked into the curving, dark avenue of firs sheltering the driveway. The tops of the trees bent and swirled with the intermittent rushing of the wind. But below where they walked, the air, scarcely stirring, was rich with the resins of damp needles steeped beneath the firs. There are trilliums in the woods, she told him. And crocuses and daisies in the fields, he added. They fell silent, no longer hearing the wind overhead, nor the sound of their feet upon sand, sensing the waking and sleeping seasons hidden in the crypt they walked along. I came past these trees in the rain to your house, he told her as they neared the main road. I know, she confessed, I was afraid. He took her hand then as they turned toward the bridge, a southeast wind blowing across pasture lands and through sparse timber pressed on their shoulders and skimmed upon the surface of the road. Not far from the stream, the sounds of the wind and water were intermingled, but once past the curve where the roadway sloped gently down to the bridge, the wind diminished and the rushing echoes of the swollen creek filled the declivity. They stood at the iron railing on the west side of the bridge, listening and watching. The surface of the stream, black and serpentine above the level of the rocks, was easily visible, although the heavens were veiled and without stars. An ominous, hollow sound, as of a string plucked across the mouth of an earthen jar, reverberated from the stream behind them. They crossed quickly to the other side searching for the source of the sound, seeing the stream coursing downward, spilling into a wide, darkly visible pool outlined by rugged boulders. It seems to have come from the basin below, Malcolm said. I don't know, she replied, gazing fixedly toward the pool. It was a strange sound. They watched in silence. The water looks deep and inviting, she said softly, then added with sudden candor. I have thought about drowning myself many times. Malcolm was shocked. The thought of suicide was foreign to him. You shouldn't think of such a thing, he declared. The church makes me afraid, she admitted, wishing to let him know what kept her from the pool. She laughed loudly, unnaturally, tossing her head back, rolling her tongue sensuously, lifting her hair with both hands. It also keeps me out of the loft, she complained, bitterly amused, yet carried distinctly toward passion through her own seductive antics. I've been drinking too much, she declared. Perhaps, Malcolm said, trying to be noncommittal, but disturbed by her self-conscious melodramatic pantomime, she wanted to go back then, but not along the driveway. She decided that there was something dismal about the shelter of the trees, even though they had found the air fragrant and the wind silent. A thin haze rose along the roadway, illuminating the surfaces of outcropping rocks, outlining barren bushes and trees. A light breeze carrying the scent of rain supplanted the wind's rush. They walked in silence until they were passing Howard's darkened house. 
We could have met them on the road driving home from Tamworth, Alice said, alarmed, aware for the first time that they risked discovery. I should be getting back, she said. When will Travis be home? Malcolm intended the question to be casual. She shrugged. Probably never. There'll be women at Malloy's. Malcolm was stung. Although what she said was not new to him, she sensed his anger. It's no secret, she said bitterly. Everyone knows it. She paused. Nora and Doreen pretend not to know, but it's everybody's secret. He was saddened by her plight, pained by the knowledge of her joyless existence. They were surprised as they neared the main farmhouse to see a light still burning in the kitchen. Alice supposed that Nora had found it absolutely necessary to stay up late and finish her work. Attracted by the light, they could scarcely avoid looking through the kitchen window, for the blinds were never drawn, and the muslin curtains always parted and bunched at the bottom. Duncan was alone in the kitchen shaving at the washstand. They were surprised and amused, witnessing by chance Duncan's inexplicable acquiescence to duty in the late night hours. In the same instant, they both noticed that the Madonna was no longer in her place above the washstand. She was lying face down on the kitchen table behind Duncan's back. Alice took some pleasure in Duncan's displacement of the statue. He has his little revenges, even in private, she said. Malcolm moved into the deeper shadows away from the window. He was struck by Duncan's uncanny sense for the dramatic, even when alone. He seldom sleeps, he said. And that means? I'm not quite sure, Malcolm replied, but he's like an actor who writes his own lines as he goes along. If that's so, she said, he has some sort of advantage, doesn't he? I think so, Malcolm agreed. He can live out his days moment by moment without ever trying. He looked with her beyond the yellow patch of light slanting from the kitchen window toward the darkened porch where Duncan sat perpetually, at the center of the world, watching the rising sun and fading moon and every falling leaf of countless seasons. I must go now, she whispered, and Malcolm, as in agreement, came to walk beside her. There was an unspoken regret that the circle of their journey to the river and around the farmlands had come to an end. But the crossing of the field toward the yard light was not somber and melancholy. Alice had to both tug at her shawl and try to prevent her gown from being mired in ruts and entangled by sticks and stubble. Malcolm helped her awkwardly. They struggled happily sometimes arm in arm over the rain-sodden, uneven landscape. A few fleeting moments of laughter and desire before they reached the yard lights of reality.